I'm Steve Fisher. Between books, the internet, and cable news, we're overwhelmed by more information than ever before. But is that information reliable? How much is misinformation? Or worse, disinformation? Regardless of our philosophical or political leanings, any of us can be duped at any moment. Dr. Raccoon Martins is a researcher at England's University of Cambridge, studying what makes us vulnerable. If you make people really familiar with how misinformation works and you teach people how to recognize it at an early stage before it, it, it tricks you, you can actually prevent a large amount of the damage that it can do. He's fighting misinformation and my guest on Life Slices. So let's start with an easy question. Who is Raccoon Martins? Raccoon Martins is a researcher in social psychology at the University of Cambridge that is currently working on the psychology of misinformation. So that's what I'm going to ask next. What is the Cambridge Social Decision-Making Lab? The Cambridge Social Decision-Making Lab is a group of social psychologists and computational social scientists that work together to solve issues that are relevant for society using the application of psychological science. So it's a larger group with about nine people at the moment. I am a postdoctoral research associate. I did my PhD here, but the leader of the group is Professor Sander van der Linden, who comes from the Netherlands. So you guys are much more socially attuned to those of us in the West, I'm assuming, <laughs> because you're actually studying this stuff where we just go ahead, plot on on social media and never get anything right. You earned that PhD on the long-term effectiveness of inoculation against misinformation. Let's start with what drew you to that topic. So it started with, I, I did my master's degree in experimental psychology in Belgium at Ghent University. And what I found is that it, it wasn't applied enough. It wasn't relevant enough to solve societal issues. And at the same time, I was interested in the United Nations. I was considering going into diplomacy. But then I found this research group in Cambridge and thought, you know, this is interesting. They tackle issues that really matter. When I arrived in the lab, they were mainly looking at climate change misinformation. And that was my first topic. But then uh, quite quickly, we looked at other topics as well and interventions to, to actually protect people against misinformation. But I found that there was one dimension that was often forgotten, and that's how long do these interventions work? So often people look at, okay, you can have an, a tool or an intervention, or you can change a platform, and you see some immediate effects. But, but what if these effects don't last? So that was my big question. And so I investigated this during the PhD whether these typical trainings for media literacy and so on, whether they last for a long time or not. Can you actually inoculate someone against misinformation? Yeah, so it is possible effectively to protect people a little bit against misinformation. Maybe maybe we have to be careful when we use metaphors like inoculation or a psychological vaccine, because it's, it's uh, not really possible to have 100% immunity. And so you can't be completely inoculated against it. But you can, you can do partial inoculation in a way. If you... If you make people really familiar with how misinformation works and you teach people how to recognize it at an early stage before it, it, it tricks you, you can actually prevent a large amount of the damage that it can do. So yes, inoculation works, but you have to take into perspective that it's not not a very large effect. Can we just add it to the COVID vaccine so we don't have to get that many yeah. shots? Uh, I'm guessing it's not that kind of inoculation. Well, you, you you say this, but we actually have a paper that looks at booster shots in psychological vaccines. Because I look at the long-term effectiveness and make that metaphor a bit and said, look, you also need a psychological booster shot um, to top up your protection against misinformation. 
But in, effectively, we also look at whether inoculation can help for vaccine uptake and so on, and we see some clear links. So. You developed a test to determine who's more susceptible to misinformation, which is what had me contacting you to do this show. Explain that test and how you developed it. We developed a misinformation susceptibility test, the MIST. Uh, the idea was basically, when I started research in misinformation, there was a whole set of wide-ranging tests to measure susceptibility that were being used by different researchers, but they were not standardized. There was no way to know if one test was better than the other. And in research, that's quite important, right? If you do an intervention, you want to test, does it improve people's susceptibility or not? But if you don't know what you're measuring, you, you, you can say a lot of things. So I set out to use psychometrics, which is the, the science of measuring, measuring psychometric, psychological traits, and try to make a test that is very short, very easy to use for large surveys, and is highly predictable. So we did this by reducing a set of thousands of headlines to a final set of 20 headlines in a simple true or false test. And we made this selection based on a whole set of criteria, various expert groups, various quantifiable metrics. But the idea is basically to, to select the most predictive set. And why this, these final 20 are so predictive is not always entirely clear. You might look at this test and think this is a bit simple, but it's remarkably predictive for, for various misinformation susceptibility indicators. So... And that's why it's useful for research, but it's also fun as a quiz online. But you have to take it for what it is. It's made for large level, large size group research rather than individual level assessment. So if you do it at individual level, there could be many reasons why you don't score high in it. It's not a perfect test. What was the time frame for this study and how did you find your subjects or how did you choose your subjects? We started working on this just when GPT-2 was released. So, so you yeah, can imagine we're at GPT-4 now, so a couple of years later. Um, and the idea was to create this in a couple of months, right? But in the end, it took us three years to create it. And that's simply because we, we, we didn't really believe it would work. So we wanted to test it again and again if it was actually something valuable, because we don't want to mislead other researchers either. And we used GPT to generate fake news headlines, which, which, was, uh, which was interesting to do. But we had to figure out how to do this properly as well. So we had to learn these these skills. And then in the end, we we first started with some smaller samples using uh, platforms to recruit participants, like one of them is Prolific, which is a very handy platform for researchers and also for participants. If you want to earn some extra uh, dollars, you can you can participate in surveys by researchers. But then we, we, we used uh, larger panels by various uh, marketing or, or market research agencies. We tried to get a representative sample of the U.S. population. Typically, there was about 2,000 people of various ethnic groups, various genders, and so on. We did this in the U.K. then again to validate if it also works in the U.K. It did work in the U.K. as well, which was actually surprising because it was really made for the U.S., then we did some very small pilots in India, Nigeria, but but it doesn't really seem to work. The results are a bit inconclusive. We are looking into this further, but it's not really meant to be used outside of the US. It was a test made for the US. You could create a test that is more universal, but that's for future work. So when you use ChatGPT to create the false headlines, did you then all of a sudden sent all these rumors out into the world? <laughs> Did you end up becoming a generator of false information yourself? I mean, we were very surprised by how easy it is to create these fake headlines. So you're, especially now, now when you use ChatGPT and you ask it to create fake news headlines, it will say something, don't do this, it's unethical. But with GPT-2, there were no such restrictions. 
um, you just asked it, please generate 1,000 fake news headlines. And it did that in five seconds. It, it, was, it was shocking. Some of them were very, very good. On the other hand, I have to say as well that a very large proportion was also very bad. So we needed to have that expert committee to then make, make a selection. On the other hand, there was GPT-2. So you can imagine that now people can use this to, to really almost spread misinformation. And we hope, of course, that our study didn't contribute to that. I'm, I'm pretty sure it hasn't. But it just what the study does show is that it's very easy to do that. And uh, people will be using it already. Well, all I know is if Trump is reelected, I'm blaming you. <laughs> yes. To what degree did the results of this study surprise you? There are a couple of studies. It's actually a whole series of studies that we conducted and some of the results were a bit contradictory in comparison to other research that was done before using other tests. For example, we see that in, in, in there is a correlation with age, that if you're older, that you're actually better at misperformance. So that, that was surprising because typically we find the opposite. Could be various reasons for that. We, it's a correlation. It's not causation per se. So we don't know if a generation, if it's um, um, something to do with, with different types of education, uh, different types of literacy news consumption. That's, that's to be explored. I think there are more questions than answers. But something I found more interesting, actually, in the studies, something that was very, very consistent was what is the best predictor for misinformation susceptibility that we found in our studies? And we found that the best predictor for resilience, actually, is open-minded thinking. And it was very contradictory to our, what we told beforehand. We told you, you need skepticism, you need a very good literacy skills, and so on. You need high education. But education had, had a link, but it, it was not that good of a predictor. If you look at open-minded thinking consistently, it was the number one predictor. So what, what does this include? So it's, it's a bit of a wide concept that we use in psychology to, to point towards a couple of things. One is intellectual humility. Are you able to say that potentially you are wrong? Linked to that, receptiveness to opposing views. Are you able to consider views that are not in line with your own views? So if you're able to do that, if you're able to express intellectual humility, and if you're effectively open to new opinions that are contrary to your own opinion, that's a good thing. It makes you more resilient. And that was the surprise. Uh, a very nice one, I think an important one. I'd be interested in knowing if you found any geographical differences in who's more susceptible. In the United States today, we have a problem with a large section of the population believing misinformation that has been fostered by different sources. Is that something that seems to be endemic in, in a particular area? That's, that's a very interesting research question. We haven't looked in detail at the U.S., but we actually have looked at this in the UK a bit. We have a paper that looks at uh, geographical variation and misinformation susceptibility that's currently published as a preprint. We had some hypothesis, for example, that people believe uh, typically that in, in, uh, people living in the countryside are a bit more isolated and a bit more susceptible, but actually not necessarily what we found in the UK. So again, it's very preliminary research. It's one of the first studies that does this. But we found that in general, in the countryside, on average, people are on our average and their misinformation susceptibility. What you found is in big cities, you found the two contrasts, people who are very resilient and very vulnerable and susceptible. And so it could be just a couple of streets further down and you're in a completely different section where the, the contrasts are very extreme. And typically it's, uh, it, it is, it seems to be a bit linked to being in a, in a community that is, sees it themselves more as an outcast, as a not fitting in society. Which makes sense because it's also what we often see in, in these studies is you feel like you don't belong. If you feel lost, 
then you look at new ways to build up a, a social identity. And sometimes alternative beliefs can give you a, a feeling of social belonging. So have you found that your belief system can affect your susceptibility to misinformation, like conservative versus liberal or anywhere in between? Yes. So... So there are, there are various different camps on ideology and misinformation susceptibility. So I, I mean, there are, we call them the, the, the symmetry camp or the asymmetry camp. So I'm, I'm in the symmetry camp, which, which is about, so we, we see that, that in, in some research that more extreme political ideologies, more extreme opinions are linked to more susceptibility to misinformation. So whether that's extreme left or extreme right, if you're at the extremes, you're more vulnerable. There's also other research uh, that says that actually yeah, more conservative, more right-leaning people are a bit more susceptible. And some studies effectively show that, that, that uh, there's actually almost no limit, that, that the more left, uh, the, the less susceptible, the more right, the more susceptible. But I think, I think that's more to do with study design. I think there are a couple of flaws there, the, the items chosen by researchers, the, the, there are various dimensions. What is the hot topic of the day? This might be an issue that more relates to, to certain views. Overall, looking at the wide range of research, I think it's more about the extremes and uh, not about left or right. I think for me, I'm a believer that left and right are equally susceptible. Very interesting. I was talking to some friends yesterday and we were talking about this subject and talking about how, at least in the United States, critical thinking is no longer taught in schools. I mean, you're, you're thrown facts and with kids today are, don't seem to be taught how to think. So that makes misinformation easier to stick. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know the, the education program on critical thinking in the United States. I don't know what it was and what it is today. But I, I do know that because misinformation is, is becoming quite an important topic worldwide, there are more and more governments looking into improving their, their media literacy and critical thinking uh, educational programs. If that's not the case in the US, that's quite worrying. And I, and I hope that ch that changes. But I already had that when, when I was in high school in Belgium in the days, then I remember there was a huge difference between schools and how they would interpret the critical thinking lessons, right? So you could have a very strong scientific rational thinking basis in one school and the other school didn't teach that at all. So it's, it's, it's often not really formalized in a very, very good way. And I think we really need that. And it's, it's, it's essential because if we don't have that, we, we could, we could go to a society where extreme relativism takes over and then uh, you can't build up uh, strong institutions based on that. That is very concerning. And there is AI is in the news a lot these days. It seems to be growing yeah. exponentially on a daily basis. So, so the threat of misinformation becomes greater with these tools out there. Is there a way to protect against that other than technological? How do, how do we protect the human being from technological tools that could hurt us? If you don't use technological tools to protect you, um, that's going to be difficult because if you look at what AI is capable of these days, if you don't have a proper verification tool, it's, it's hard to know whether a photo is real or whether it is real. A couple of things is that I, I think we will... I think actually this 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 finding from the mis studies that that open minded thinking is important is is I think an essential element because in the end there will be so many so much content there will be this flooding of, of of various misinformation contents online that we will need to just learn to to collaborate with people we also don't agree with that that we we, we must in a, in a way accept that there will be that there will be some polarization and other views but that we have to overcome that and collaborate 
despite. So I see that everywhere, that their families now are, every family have now a couple of family members that believe in conspiracy theories or that follow some kind of very strange group uh, on social media. And, and that's fine. I think the most important thing is that we have to learn to to keep talking to them and collaborating with them. Because in the end, there will be convincing misinformation and everyone falls into the trap. Uh, I will believe misinformation, you will believe misinformation. And in the end, we have to be able to, to despite whatever we believe in or see, be able to, to, to work together and build up a society. So that's something we have to learn. It's, it will be a different way of building society, but the world will, will change a bit because of it. It's, it's really frightening here. I am very concerned with a new election season around the corner and how we are already divided in this country and in many other countries. Uh, the democracy is under attack in different places. Yeah, open-mindedness would be a great thing. But can you teach open-mindedness? How do you encourage it? How do you even start with people who are tending to believe their side and only their side? Yeah, that's right. In a way, it's, it's, it's easier to teach someone to be skeptical and to recognize flaws in logic and so on. Open-mindedness is a different kind of thing. Um, it's a good question. Can you train it? Uh, uh, there's a little bit of evidence that you potentially can, but that's actually something I want to do research on in the next couple of years. That's, that's one of my new plans and goals. I think it's, it's almost a, a, some kind of precursor or a protector to a protection against the effects of misinformation. Uh, what you can do is, you can reflect it in leadership and media news agencies can can lead by examples. doesn't matter which side you're on. If you're able to have experts, also for experts, we, same for me, myself, that's with myself. When I communicate evidence, I, I, I always now try to do an effort of saying like, look, this might actually not be as big of an effect as, as, as I'm, that might look like. Or, you know, you have to take into account that, that this was a potentially biased sample and you have to be honest with your results. And you, you could see the same with the vaccines, for example, the way we communicate about vaccines. If you say, let's say one expert says vaccines are 100% safe, it's impossible that something goes wrong. And the other one says, look, um, we did this and this uh, quite safe, but some people will have adverse effects. Immediately after, you will see that the, the expert with more certainty might influence more people to take the vaccine but if one week later there are this blood clotting for example then suddenly there will be a huge increase in distrust but for the for the expert that said like look uh, yeah this is this is kind of what i predicted um and it is it is like that then at least you can kind of ma maintain that nuance and i think everyone has to do that from all the sides so you have to keep talking to the other side but also reflect in your media communication, a certain degree of uncertainty. And, and people can cope with that. It's not that we need like authoritarian leaders that say it's like this and there's no other way to do it. I think that's a way forward. The first thing, so this is leading by example and, and setting some social norm that updating your opinion is okay. And then the training bit is something I will look into a bit more in the next years. Misinformation has been around forever. There were always been dictators have, have used misinformation to control the population. It's not an invention of the internet society, but social media seems to have propagated the misinformation more today. So how do we protect against that? Should the social media companies, and they've all been under fire for not doing enough to curb misinformation, they always claim, well, free speech, you have to let people mm -hmm. say things, but people lie. So you don't necessarily have to let people say things, but how do you control that? I think there's a lot of potential in social media to do actually good to society. But in, in this 
in the current scenario, the, the, the way the platforms are built and set up, knowing human psychology, if we would build new social media platforms now, we could do it differently. We could do it differently in the sense that the, the, the platform could be built in a way that promotes consensus building, that promotes appreciating other views and so on. But now the algorithms are more fine-tuned to, towards promoting content that is engaging and polarizing and simple and emotional. So this is where, where it goes. And I think this is the problem with the free speech argument is, I mean, I, I'm all for free speech, but the algorithms are not neutral. So at the moment, there is no such thing as free speech because basically the algorithms promote some kind of content and not others. And it's very hard to imagine a social media platform that doesn't have algorithms either. So, so there's going to be something. On top of that, we also know that there are so many fake accounts. It's, it's incredible. A lot of fake accounts and trolls and from various sides of, of politics, but also from various states. And on top of that, we also know that the majority of people are actually not really active on, 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 on many social media types in, in terms of posting political content. If you look at Twitter, for example, first of all, there's only a small portion of people that has it, but then even smaller is the portion of people that actively use it. So it also gives a skewed form of reality. So if 99% stay silent on Twitter, then you also don't really have a balanced or a debate or you have the illusion of, of that. But if you then take into account that a large portion of these are also fake bots, then, then you could ask like, okay, what are we actually looking at if we look at these social media polarization? Maybe just an artifact of interaction of a minority of hyperactive users with hyperactive bots. I don't think this is free speech, and I don't think this is balanced. And there is no way that the individual can control the algorithms. I mean, that's something that the social media companies do. And I think, I think that is definitely something that I think uh, social media uh, companies can invest in and in giving more control to the user, giving more options of over how the algorithm works. And I think that's the future. I think that's, that's how, how they will be able to cope with, with new laws that are coming in the future to protect users is by give, giving back control, right? <laughs> I don't know if I'm comfortable with that thought. Given how bad most Americans are with math, I don't know if I want us controlling our own algorithms. <laughs> <laughs> Most people don't even know what an algorithm is. Gee, I knew I should have paid attention in algebra. Yeah, that's right. So good, good education might come in handy after all, right? <laughs> How can we use the, the data from your study to change the way we ingest information? I think there are various things we can do. Um, one one way is, is we can look at groups of people and see which groups are less susceptible, which ones are more, right? What do they do different? What can we learn from them? What can we learn from their behaviors? What are kind of the factors that, that define them? So that's the first thing, identifying kind of key predictors for susceptibility or resilience that could, could help us learn more. But also for you as an individual, if you take the test, you, I think the test itself is not necessarily the, the most enlightening thing, but I hope that it will spark your interest if you score low or high. You might want to figure out why that is and you might read more about it. So how the work was done or similar research is done or other researchers do it. So I hope it, it will make people more interested in the in the dilemmas of, of how, how do you define fake news and so on. It's a very complicated issue. And if you look at the actual paper that we wrote on this test, it's a, we go in, into some nuance on these discussions. And uh, we hope 
that will get picked up a bit more. And then on top of that, I, in the future, I hope interventions will be better evaluated with more standardized tools so that we know which kind of training packages actually work. If you do a critical thinking class on school, you could make people do the test before and after, for example, as a very simple example, that you can see what's actually effective. Test is, is, is necessarily the, the, the ultimate test now, because I think that's another thing. So this is just a start. What I mainly hope is that other researchers will now use similar approaches to develop even better tests, and that then will help society after. <laughs> you talk about p taking the test yourself. How do people take the test? Yeah, so there's this website, yourmist.streamlet.app, and you can take the quiz. Uh, there are two versions, a 20-question version or a 16-question version. And you basically have to indicate what's fake and real. And at the end, you get a score with an interesting decomposition. That's something where you can learn from. So you get a score for how good are you in discerning between real and fake. Then you get a score in what percentage of the fake items did you identify as fake. Score of which what percentage did you of the real items did you identify as real. And then a general bias score. Are you in general hyper-skeptical or are you extremely gullible? Like, do you just say yes to everything or no to everything? So you get these four scores and then you can learn about your own profile. Like, oh, maybe I'm a bit too, too skeptical or a bit too gullible. Because in the end, you have to find the balance. If you say, I don't believe anything anymore, that's also not really good. That is a problem. I just make up my own news every morning because I don't b believe anything I see or read. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any questions that you would like to answer that I have not asked? Uh, no, there are, I, I would like to answer many questions, you know. <laughs> I, I, would, I would suggest there are multiple quizzes outside, uh, out there and multiple tests. Have a look at the other ones as well. For example, there is Spot the Troll, which is a very good uh, online quiz uh, on detecting Twitter trolls, uh, made by a colleague, Jeff Lees, who's doing amazing work on this field as well. And it's really shocking. I, I didn't score that high in that test. So it's just, a, it's, a, it's a good, this is the problem with my own tests, right? I can't take it myself because I know the answers. You know, and I do these other tests and I score badly. No. <laughs> There's also a, a very cool game by John Cook. It's called Cranky Uncle. Uh, it's an app uh, for iPhone and Android. And you can actually learn about logical fallacies. And, and he mainly does it around the theme of, of climate change. But, but in general, it's super interesting. You can apply it to any topic. So yeah, Spot the Troll by Jeff Lees and uh, Cranky Uncle by John Cook. I can highly recommend. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting, yeah. And how do people find out more about your work and the Cambridge Social Decision Making Lab? Yeah, you can you can Google the Cambridge Social Decision Making Lab. We have a nice website and we have a Twitter account as well where we share our news uh, at CSDM Lab from Cambridge Social Decision Making Lab, of course. We also we also have a game that we developed that is one of our mo most popular. It's called Bad News. You can see it at getbadnews.com. And it also has an educator sheet with some information on our research and, and how it was made. One final question for you. Why do so many PhDs who can officially be called doctor not like to be called doctor? <laughs> yes, there, there's this new... Uh, I may, hopefully it's intellectual humility, right? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's a new trend, I think, to... Do not use titles as much anymore. So you see that in the UK, they have also they have many titles and 
and and people so that's one reason another reason is that people uh, get more adverse reactions uh, now i think than they get in the past uh, and if you use the title doctor and then you say something someone doesn't like then they, they will respond to that and say like and you call yourself a doctor so it's <laughs> it's it's, it's, a, it's a, a difficult issue so so it's it's also in a way it's intellectual humility and in another way it's also to make sure you don't get nasty reactions from people unfortunately yeah because uh, especially in in the fake news industry, so where where they think that everyone with a PhD is 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 uh, is, is um, I don't know is a slave of the liberal universities or something, right? Well, Raccoon Martins, thank you so much for participating in Life Slices, and it's fascinating work and a fascinating study, and I encourage everybody to learn more about it and go take the test. Excellent. Yes, thank you. My thanks to Raccoon Martins for being on Life Slices. As I've said before, news and information are plentiful, but getting the truest news and information takes work. You can't trust one source, and you cannot just get it from one source, or only from sources that share your point of view. Like a good journalist, get at least three different sources, domestic and foreign, to understand what's really up, and take the Cambridge test to see how susceptible you are. You'll find it at yourmist, Y-O-U-R-M-I-S-T dot streamlit dot app. It's free and takes less than 10 minutes. By the way, I scored 20 out of 20, which says I'm more resilient to misinformation than 96% of the U.S. population. Not sure if that says something about me or the U.S. population. If you liked this program, please like Life Slices on social media and subscribe wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios.